Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 12, Making Links Between Subjects, with Dr Mary Woolley. Welcome back everybody to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching. We are interviewing down the line today somebody who is uh, indicative of why you need to get yourselves to conferences because they present a really useful opportunity to network and find people who you can learn a lot from. This is what happened last, was it October, Tom, or was it November? I can't remember now, October, I think. In Stratford-upon-Avon, we went to the USET conference, and I'm going to bomb on this now. It was the University's Council for the Education of Teachers. Yeah, there we go. Um, (laughs) So we were at the USET conference, We we were presenting, and we spotted a paper that really looked like an opportunity for us um, in the context of curriculum reform in Wales. The paper was entitled The Need to Promote Dialogue Between Curriculum Subjects and Why That Can Be Meaningful Initial Teacher Education. So this is a very big introduction to our guest, Dr Mary Woolley from Canterbury Christchurch University. Welcome to our podcast. How are you doing? Thank you very much, Emma. I'm doing well, thank you. (laughs) Now, I wish that you were here with us in person, but you're currently, I want to say, in Folkestone at the moment in Kent? Yes, I'm in sunny Folkestone in Kent. Ah, wonderful. Um, And we can hear you nice and clearly through our ears, so hopefully this is going to be a very stable connection. But... um, we're not going to talk about the paper that you presented at USET, although we'll probably touch upon it. Um, we're going to talk about a paper that's currently in review. It's a draft paper entitled Teachers' Perspectives on the Relationship Between Secondary School Science and Religious Education Departments. Before we get into that, Mary, can you just tell us a bit about you, your background in education? Yeah. Hi, Emma and Tom. So I started off in education, well actually I started off teaching English as a foreign language to local students around here in Folkestone and then I decided suddenly at the end of my history degree that of course I wanted to be a history teacher. So I became a history teacher for a while and then I was lucky enough to get an opportunity at the University of Exeter to work in ITE and and so I went down to Exeter and then and when a job came up in Canterbury closer to home I transferred to there working in initial teacher education and running the secondary history programs. Um, I've done a few things since then. I've also run an undergraduate program in education studies and since I had my third child I decided to take a bit of a step back and I work in a research centre called the National Institute for Christian Education Research and um, we look at all sorts of um, different projects to do with church schools which make up a large chunk of um, the schools in England but also to do with um, how religion is presented in schools. And so you were presenting to us when we first met you a a really interesting project about the the links between science and religion and you've got a really big kind of project going there. Let's just have a little little listen to this short soundtrack from your, your project website just to give people a taste of what you've been involved with. Science and religion. How we make sense of the relationship between these has puzzled even the greatest of minds. Some believe that they are in conflict, others view them as entirely incompatible, while some will elevate one to the detriment of the other. But this separation and perceived incompatibility can cause significant problems in our understanding of how knowledge works and how we make sense of the world around us. 
especially when placed in the context of the classroom, where we expect pupils to navigate between and make sense of these two very different ways of knowing and meaning-making. So what happens when pupils are presented with topics and big questions about things that are difficult or even impossible to fully address through a single way of knowing? This is why pupils will ask religious questions in science and science questions in RE lessons. These are science-religion encounters, and helping pupils to make sense of these encounters requires a deeper reflection on how knowledge works. When science and religion are viewed and understood as two different ways of knowing, we can show how to use both to illustrate and explore big questions in meaningful ways. But our research shows that due to a lack of dialogue between subject teachers, these encounters are not intentionally planned for, and when encounters do occur, it is left up to the pupils to try to make sense of them and fit the pieces together. And when they are unable to, they are left with a fragmented and compartmentalised understanding of how knowledge works. What if we could change this? What if we could create more opportunities for dialogue? Where subject leads collaborated and wrote curricula to help with the most important issues of our time. Where encounters between science and religion were encouraged and explored to help create a more coherent learning experience for pupils. And what if teachers had the confidence to encourage enriching conversations between the subjects? And what if teachers had the resources and skills to help pupils navigate through these moments of encounter, helping them towards an integrated and holistic understanding of knowledge and meaning-making? At NYSA, we are exploring these questions and we are offering support and advice to help teachers build a more coherent curriculum as we work towards an integrated vision of knowledge. So interesting project and, and obviously as Emma set out we're, we're quite interested in this idea of connections between subject disciplines because of the curriculum we're in but you are not in that uh, curriculum landscape you're over the border where things are very very different so why are you looking into these these interdisciplinary connections what's the rationale behind that? Well partly Tom it's to do with funding as um, as these things always are and um, we're funded by the Templeton World Charity Foundation but to be honest it didn't really start out this one as an interdisciplinary project it's more about what we called science religion encounters so the project is about beginning teachers and science religion encounters and Bob describes it nicely as my colleague Bob Bowie as when religion creeps into the science classroom or when concepts about science creep into the RE classroom which we know that they do whether it's because a pupil asks a question about religion or a question about science and and so on you know how is the teacher tooled up to respond to those type of questions and what knowledge do they have of what that pupil has learnt in the other classroom but through collecting the data on that project obviously interdisciplinary relationships emerge and you find out quite a lot about them. There are a lot of these terms that come up in Curriculum for Wales, Mary. I know that you've had a look at that. In fact, you, you mention it quite a bit in this uh, article. But the one that you talk about is interdisciplinary or interdisciplinarity in schools. Can you just give our listeners a, a, a just a flavour of, of what we mean by that? 
Yeah, well, I think interdisciplinary is really when the concepts and content of one subject are relating to the content and concepts of another subject. So it differs a little bit from the kind of cross-curricular approaches, which might just be, oh, look, there's a topic in yours and here's a topic in mine and they look quite similar, so put it together. I think interdisciplinary has a more rigorous underpinning to it than kind of simplistic cross-curricular approaches. Okay, thank you for that. And just going back to religion and science, again, in the article, you make the point that religion and science have been described over the the decades as having different types of relationship. And and we'll get on to talking about Barber's model and, and typology. But give us a sense of that relationship in its sort of best description and, and, and its worst case scenario? Oh, well, I think, you know, um, a conflict metaphor has often been used for the relationship between science and religion. And in itself, that's quite controversial, because actually, when you look at many um, scientific discoveries, they might have come from people who were religious. Although, of course, perhaps in a different time to the more secular times that we're living in now. And so, you know, it's a rather complicated relationship that has, has gone on over time. And, and there has also been people that will come along and try and make more of that conflict metaphor and suggest that, you know, it's not possible to be both religious and, scient- and, and believe in science, which, of course, is, we think is a nonsense. And so to think about how that is represented in schools and whether there is a kind of fear coming through um, about how you put these subjects together, um, I think is quite an interesting one. I mean, there has been research done in the last year by uh, Theos and the Faraday Trust, suggesting that this conflict metaphor is completely outdated, really, and looking at public perceptions and suggesting that really there's a healthier relationship between those two. Although they say many of the conversations are in what they describe as the shallow end, and that actually, you know, we need to be better at getting conversations in the deeper end, conversations about ethics or hermeneutics that may be more um, challenging conversations, but that it's important for people to have to really understand that relationship between the two disciplines i was quite taken by yours or or bob's uh, idea of science or religion creeping into one another's classrooms i was just kind of thinking about your work uh, with student teachers to what extent is that creeping because they actually find it quite scary to be dealing with the sort of interface between those two subjects because i imagine it could get controversial quite quickly yes i mean what we actually found though is that there was aspirations from the student teachers for more dialogue between the subjects. They wanted more than they were seeing in their placement schools. And they thought there was a potential relationship between these two subjects that needed to be almost encouraged that they, I mean, um, there's one report within, which is um, in the article of science student teacher who um, his pupils are doing some dissections. And, um, and he knows that the Muslim pupils are allowed to opt out of these dissections. But the other pupils in the class want to know why. And he doesn't know the full details of why. So he feels that he's able to go to a friendly RE teacher and say, what is the answer I should be giving the students? And so he can go back into his science classroom the next day and give an accurate account of why some pupils are not having to be involved in that dissection. And I see that as this example of uh, dialogue. And many of the students' teachers aspired to have more of that. But they said, well, actually, 
I've never met an RE teacher or our subject departments are so far away. You know, I've never observed in that subject. And that was more of the reality. It's interesting you mentioned dialogue there, Mary. I want to come back to uh, Barbara's model typology here because um, this was something that I know really got us excited when we attended your set paper. And we know from our own research with our student teachers looking at the potential powerful connections that can be made um, between art subjects, there is a danger if students don't sort of understand how different sort of maybe categories of of pedagogical approaches to bringing the subjects together can have sort of stronger or or weaker impact on the learning in one or the other or both disciplines and we've certainly Mm. we we described it as hit it and hope we just had a go to begin with and because we didn't have that sort of language to describe what was happening we found it incredibly difficult so tell us about Barbara's uh, model and tell us about how you use that with your pre-service or beginning teachers in your research? Yes so if you go into any of the literature on science religion and you know Alistair McGrath is a good place to start then you'll find writings about Barber. So Barber in the late 1960s starts looking at the literature around the relationship between science and religion and 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 sorts it if you like under four different headings which are conflict I'm going to get it wrong now. <laughs> Conflict, <laughs> independence, dialogue, and integration. And because I came across this so much when I was uh, reading around science and religion, uh, we thought, is there a way within our survey that we can ask students what they think the relationship is between the science department and the RE department and get an inkling, if you like, of what these relationships are on a more national scale. Because from the focus groups, we were finding out, you know, all this, as I described in the last um, answer, about never having met one another, the teachers being different departments or different buildings and different ends of the school and so on. And we wanted to have a bigger picture. So we put into our online survey, Barber's typology, but we also added the word collaboration in because um, from our focus group data with the student teachers, we could see, or from the literature reviews actually, there are examples of collaboration between science and RE teachers. So that's how we used um, the typology within our research. To what extent did you have to kind of explain what those meant to the participants? Because I know we shamelessly nicked this idea of yours and worked with our student teachers um, to discuss what was going on in their schools. And while we were sort of putting it together, we, we suddenly felt that we might actually have to go off on a bit of a detour and explain what these things meant to avoid any confusion. And yeah. um, Was that something you felt you had to do or were you more interested in their perceptions of, of what they meant? Yeah, no, well, there's two different parts to the data collection and you picked up the complete flaw in it. Thanks for that, Tom. (laughs) 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 At one point, what we did first was kind of look at the literature, then we're looking at the focus group data and then we're putting it out into an online survey. And so we... We are using our own definitions, if you like. And then when we're working with the focus groups, it's more of a deductive analysis. So we're saying, oh, look, there's an example which I would put into my slot of collaboration. But actually, we didn't explain it to the focus group students because the analysis came later. 
And then in the survey, there's no description at all. So this is why in the paper, I've tried to use what the student, the examples the student teachers give, but it's very much a, this might be seen as this, and this might be seen as this. Um, by all means, more work needs to be done on this, whether it's useful or not. But I think as perhaps one of you said to me, it seems to be a clearer set of criteria than talking about transdisciplinary and interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary and so on. And those might need more definition and are very much closer to one another than the difference between independence, dialogue, collaboration and integration. So I think it might be interesting to put those in front of student teachers and say, well, look, can you think of examples that might fit into these different boxes um, and do it that way around rather than give them definition? And I suppose there's not necessarily any value judgments around them, but conflict does suggest it does have obviously negative connotations. But the independence one was interesting from having looked at your, your paper, that independence seemed to come out top in the way it was being, the relationship between science and religion was being described by, not only by beginning teachers and pre-service teachers, but also by teachers who were quite experienced. Yes. I mean, just going back to conflict for a moment, there's certainly no guns blazing between, you know, the two departments. We didn't see examples of that. But there were some examples of tensions and actually they didn't get into the paper because there were more examples of student teacher and student teacher who'd been asked to kind of work together on something or some of the RE teachers had heard a, a negative comment from a science teacher or the other way around. So there were certainly some tensions and I think there were examples of that coming into school as well because the pupils might say things like in the RE department well we've learned about this in science and it's just nonsense and so it's kind of mutual respect that Hall and McKinney talk about between the two subjects and the subject teachers I think is essential but in terms of independence yes more than half of the student teachers and more than half the experienced teachers described um, the relationship between the departments that they worked in as one of independence. And again, you know, it's a slight inference from that, but we presume independence means there's no connections between these two, those two departments. And although there might not be a hierarchy, if you're looking at interdisciplinary work, then independence is not going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> and and did, did the focus groups shed any sort of more light on how uh, what that meant uh, the independence or was it as you just sort of inferred yeah no I well we we went back to the focus groups then and looked at examples that might be described as independent and they were things like I I've never met a teacher from that subject or I've, I've never observed in their classroom and we found also that many you know science teachers had last studied RE at 16 or even 14 and many of the RE teachers you know had last studied science at, at GCSE at 16 so they didn't really have a recent understanding of that subject and then there wasn't any opportunity on ITE courses or in placement schools to find out more about it despite the fact that in the RE classroom, certainly you're teaching some scientific concepts quite often. We had an interesting conversation about integration in particular, because I mean, if you if you take these things at one end, you know, we don't we don't want to be in conflict with anybody. That's that's never a good thing, really. But certainly in some of the work we've done over here, that there are definitely ways to do integration very badly in ways that don't serve, <laughs> you know, one or both subjects and which things get watered down or, or things gets kind of second class status. And um, 
is it kind of perfectly fine to get as far as maybe dialogue and, and maybe even a little bit of collaboration and then conclude that actually integration is not right for you? Or are we aiming for integration? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly it depends which country you're in, doesn't it, <laughs> perhaps? And uh, like you, you know, when I came into ITE, at the end of the last Labour government after 2007, I think, you know, there was a bit of a push on subjects working together and some schools were doing integration models and, and some of those seemed to me as an outsider to lack rigour, you know, that they picked a, oh, here's a topic, here's light was my favourite example. And so in history, they were teaching the Enlightenment because the science department has said we need to study light. And it just seemed a really sporadic and unreasoned way of selecting historical content that was important to teach to pupils. So it's the way that you're doing it that matters. I think there are schools still that have integrated curriculum and perhaps put competence first over uh, content. And I'm sure it would be possible to do that well, but I think it takes an awful lot of thinking about. And having done this work, I realised that you can't just jump at these things you know you need to give time and space for teacher dialogue in fact when I remember back to that school that was doing um, light I remember that they had a meeting but they, all the classes were taught by two teachers classes of 60 and even the school was designed to have classrooms for 60 as several were there towards the end of that decade and so subjects were taught together in that way and they gave time on a Monday evening for the two teachers to sit down and talk about what they were going to do and how they were going to do it, which I thought was uh, fascinating, really, in terms of what is being demanded of them. It's not what you've done before or what's come before. There's also um, Barry Billingsley, who's a, a colleague of mine at Christchurch, talks a lot about um, subjects in silos and the importance of kind of integrating certainly for different topics. I mean, there are these big topics which fall across curriculum subject boundaries, such as climate change or such as the origins of the universe and so on. How are we actually approaching those? And could some kind of interdisciplinary approach help? But I do think it takes a lot of time and thought. And I'm very much of the school that I like disciplinary first. <laughs> Thinking about the dialogue, I mean, you said there the dialogue's really important. And we, in our work with the student teachers, have had to do a lot of work on dialogue between subject disciplines because they don't necessarily know about one another's disciplines. We have a lovely quote we always wheel out from Fortley and Savage about the cherished ideas and ways of thinking that each subject contains. Is this project moving us towards any kind of model or kind of structure for that dialogue? Because I think we've, we've kind of concluded over here that it's much harder than it looks and it needs a lot su more support than you might think yeah well at the moment I'm working on uh, the next paper if you like which is trying to look at what dialogue might mean I mean looking at some of the work that's been done on the Welsh curriculum as well I know you had pioneer schools and you've had your AOLEs and there's been lots of teachers meeting together and having lots of conversations and lots of dialogue and it, it sounds like that's an excellent opportunity for teachers and I don't know how far that that's been and spread out across the country but I think I agree with you that the more I read about it and the more I think about it dialogue isn't something simple and we're talking about something more than a chat aren't we and I think that there might be some kind of need you know is it possible to provide some kind of uh, framework or scaffold for conversations it's quite a skill 
isn't it? And having a challenging conversation with somebody who might not agree with you because they come from a different disciplinary background about how you can find a way to meet in the middle and with while keeping as well pupils needs and the needs of the full curriculum um, at the heart of that. So I, I don't think there's anything simple here and I'm not I mean it's wonderful to hear that your teachers are teaching are talking across those disciplinary boundaries and I think back to when Bob and I used to teach um, professional studies but we used to do things like behaviour and pastoral side of things and so on and I'm not sure that the students ever really got the chance to come in and say this is what I'm trying to achieve in my subject and this is why it's important what are you trying to achieve in yours and the previous paper on purposes alludes to that as well and says that the science teachers and the RE teachers didn't have much sense of what the purpose of the other subject was. Mm, yeah, that, that really struck us. And I think what you've started to do, um, you've gotten quite a way down the road with it, is to put together some materials online that might support teachers with this and that was very interesting to us and you make a very good point in the paper that your pre-service teachers need more support more guidance and opportunity to build relationships across subject boundaries so can you give us a flavor of what those materials include as they sort of frameworks for conversations are they tasks what are they yeah well um so if you go to our website which is nicer.org.uk and you can go on to the science religion encounter materials and um, we're just we're trying to get up to about 12 of these it took quite a lot of debate actually in our team of what we were trying to achieve essentially they're trying to get our research which is reasonably academic and going into academic journals into a meaningful form for early career teachers or ITE tutors so that it can be useful and this was always the third phase of our project. There are a series of tasks for example on the purposes one where you might think about how you're going to decide upon the purpose of your subject and it's particularly focused on RE as that's that's where our, our funding goes really and then also the next one is thinking about how you're going to share that purpose and who you need to share that purpose with and how you might be encouraged to do that by you know or supported to do that by senior leaders but each of these we still call them vignettes but they're not really vignettes these resources each of these resources has a conversation and suggestions about a conversation that you might need to have with someone in this area whether it's with a mentor whether it's with somebody who teaches your subject or somebody who teaches another subject it would be nice to have piloted those a little bit more and and get out there and and see what conversations people are actually having but I think that might be a further stage for us. And we're a very small country over here. We're all very excited about Curriculum for Wales and have been going on about it in our in our little national silo for quite some time. It's kind of refreshing to see that there's some very relevant stuff going on outside. So I suppose uh, as a person on the outside looking into what we're trying to achieve over here, not necessarily an expert in our curriculum reform process, but someone who's who's kind of connected to it, our, our audience is mostly new teachers, student teachers, some of our school colleagues who are kind of trying to work this stuff out. What are your thoughts? What are your takeaways from the outside, having done your research and then having found out about what's going on over here? Um, what do you think are the potential opportunities? But what would you what would you warn people against? And maybe what would you suggest people make sure that they do? Well, from an outside perspective and somebody you know my PhD was looking at 
history teachers who had taught history for more than 25 years and talking to them and kind of creating an oral history of their experiences of change over 25 years. And I found almost essentially that change was driven by assessment reform. So when a new GCSE is brought in and it demands a new thing, then, you know, there might be different training and so on. But I think, therefore, the opportunities that teachers in Wales seem to have had for collaboration and discussion and curriculum making and a focus on curriculum enactment is is wonderful and, and really good to see and that there is teacher agency you know if I look at this from the outside from England it looks like there is a lot of teacher agency involved in this and that that is going to affect the professional learning of those teachers because they are involved in this curriculum for the ground up. Of course, though, you know, we still live in this kind of very accountability driven society. And, you know, there are there are challenges within that. And whether you're given the time to do that effectively or whether you still have the pressures of GCSE results and and so on, which are actually driving and perhaps, you know, giving a bit of a bias to what you might be wanting to focus on in the classroom. But I think those opportunities for teachers to talk about what they want to do in the curriculum and have those experts coming and visit is wonderful and you know when I've read some of the uh, evaluations of it you know and the tensions in the room and the teachers standing up against the experts I mean these are things that make that sound quite exciting from the perspective over here but I realized that that might have been more about the pioneer schools and it's how you get that feeling of involvement in that curriculum making and how you get that rigor when you're doing quite unusual things like bringing together these subjects into the AOLEs um, and when you're trying to talk about progression right the way across and so on and how you get that rigour in those classrooms which really need it, you know, listening to your previous report on poverty in Wales and so on. Um, I think these are the these are the challenges and I just think that senior leaders need to be making sure that they're trying to give time to replicate some of that and giving the teachers the confidence that they need to do what they think is right based on a kind of rigorous reading of the materials. Yeah, I I agree with you there, Mary, and actually have the confidence and the language to sort of push back if they try some of these things out and they find it to be not the right path to go down um very basic way to describe it because something that struck me i think it was in your literature review for this article was um a limitation sometimes of these sorts of models such as barber's typology is that they can also be frequently used to promote what is thought should be the case and i I just thought that you know there's a potential danger sometimes particularly in curriculum for wales because we've got some of these terms these different terms multidisciplinary interdisciplinary and without a full sort of what what you call like a nuanced language understanding of what we mean even from your model you know a nuanced language around collaboration around integration then we're not necessarily going to be able to spot when something isn't working. I mean, Tom and I have found through the work that we've done with our student teachers and, and thinking about our own subjects ourselves, is that actually music and drama aren't those sort of happy bedfellows that maybe somebody on the outside looking in would think that we are. We're actually quite different in the way that we work. So I, I think I, I agree with what you're saying. And I think that maybe it might give teachers a more nuanced language to be able to push back if something isn't necessarily working even though we're saying that this is the way that curriculum for Wales should be done. 
Yes, I think one of the main points of the article, and whether I've managed to get that across or not, is uh, is questionable. But that there are these, I find in the conversations that we had in the focus group, there are these layers of interdisciplinarity, and and it's it's not just it's interdisciplinary or it's not, but but there are almost steps towards that, and you don't necessarily have to get to the full integration, but I think an awareness of what is happening in other classrooms and other subjects which we all think we've got because we all went to school and yet when curriculum change and curriculum reform comes in it changes what the pupils are experiencing and how far a teacher's catching up with that or given the space to catch up with that so that pupils who are our focus at the end of the day you know are getting a coherent curriculum with a teacher understanding what's hap- what they're learning in English down the road or what they're learning in science and so on and, and what, what they're trying to achieve, what those teachers are trying to achieve in those subjects. So you mentioned various project websites and things and vignettes and all sorts of lovely goodies. So where are people going to find those? And uh, when they get there, what will they find? Um, well, if you go to nicer.org.uk which she quickly does <laughs> going on your own website which has a great name i have to say <laughs> yes yes doesn't it work um and um then um you can see all the different projects uh, that we've done um, some there that i work on about the relationship with school church and home and chaplains and um, hermeneutics and so on um, but this particular project is called science and religion encounters so you can click on that And then you can see various different numbers or resources which are going to take you through a series of different activities. The ones here are, what is the purpose of RE on the school curriculum? How can I teach about truth in a complex world? How can I foster collaboration between the RE and the science departments in my school? And so on. And on the left, there's also links to academic publications. Um, And so you can see uh, that some of the papers that have been done, because there was another project as part of Science Religion Encounters that we haven't talked about that my colleagues did, which was uh, a very, this is a very macro trying to get a big picture, but they did a micro project where they watched two lessons, um, which are about science and religion in the primary school classroom, and then did a very close video pedagogy analysis, interviewing teachers and pupils about their experiences of what had gone in there. So my colleague has a paper about that as well. A cornucopia of goodies there. Thank you very much, Mary. (laughs) Okay, so... There's also a video which uh, should be up there actually by the end of the day, which will also... It's kind of three minutes which explains what we're trying to achieve and raises some of the questions. And it would be suitable for student teachers or for sharing with the teachers in your school and uh, and so on. Even pupils could think about it, I think. Yeah, and that's the video of the sound that we played at the beginning. I have to say, we saw a draft version of that at your presentation. It's well worth getting it in video form as well, because it was really nicely presented. And um, by a Cardiff colleague, I have to say. Well, well, well. <laughs> ah, look at that. Well, we, we will be poised and, and ready to, to see what else comes out of this very large scale research project. And, and we're, we're lucky enough to be doing some work with you down the line as well. And maybe there's fertile ground there that we'll explore to, to do some research together. So watch this Great. space, everybody. Yeah. Now, Mary, I I hope that you've been told about our short slots. Um, We've got two of them, something interesting and and something to try.
cry that we always end our episodes with. So um, it's over to you, really. I don't mind which order you do them in. Which, which What have you brought for us today? Well, so obviously... Tom emailed me about this last week and it got me thinking. But here's something interesting. You're going to have to bear with me. So I was um, reading a novel over the weekend called The Fell by Sarah Moss, which is a great novel. Um, You know, I I advise people to read it, but it is based in lockdown. So it's slightly traumatic in that way. And it's essentially about a woman who goes for a walk on a fell when she's not supposed to, because she's supposed to be self-isolating. But the book refers to a paper in the BMJ, in the medical journal. And and I thought this one was quite interesting. And the paper is by a German um, academic called Ernil Hansen, and it's called The Effect of Therapeutic Suggestions During General Anesthesia on Postoperative Pain and Opioid Use. And it's a multi-centre randomised control trial. So essentially, they took 400 patients undergoing an operation. All those patients were given a tape and a set of headphones. But for half the patients, the tape played therapeutic suggestions, basically reassurance. It's all going to be okay. Your surgeons are really well trained. They know what they're doing, etc., etc. And the other half got nothing. That's a relief. I thought it was going to be something terrible. (laughs) After the the operation, the patients were able to self-administer opioids. But the patients who'd been given the reassurance needed fewer painkillers than the patients who hadn't. And I just thought, oh, that's fascinating anyway, isn't it? But I wondered also how you apply that to the classroom. And, you know, this is just how my mind works, um, having spent so much time in education and how often we reassure our pupils that they will be able to do this and that it's all going to be okay through the pain of learning, which no doubt for some pupils, you know, it's quite a daunting experience. And I wondered what it would be like to actually observe an experienced teacher. And I think about really experienced, wonderful teachers that I know who I think use the language of reassurance consistently through how they taught and that it wouldn't necessarily be something that a beginning teacher would or a student teacher would pick up on. And yet I think that we need to help our pupils and reassure them and be kind of therapeutic to them as they go through this painful process of learning or writing or performing or whatever they're doing. So. Well, well, I feel very vindicated for the fact that my, my ma- motto on the PGC is it'll all be fine to the extent well, there that you go. My, my students one year, they always have a little WhatsApp group for PGC music. They actually entitled the WhatsApp group, it'll all be fine. Yeah. And they need, you need to see what their painkiller use was. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know what their <laughs> opioid intake was, but I think you also get an award for a very, very left field short slot there. Well done, Mary. <laughs> Top job. And what have you got, dare I ask, for uh, something to try? Well, I think something to try goes back to the paper. And I think I would dare the student teachers, as they get more confident in second placement, to go around and ask the annoying questions you know what happens if you ask either your fellow student teachers or you ask experienced teachers in the school what what are you trying to achieve in your subject you know what is the purpose of your subject now I can imagine how annoying that would be over the lunch break when we're all trying to talk about what happened on tv last night but you know um, what kind of responses would you get and also I think there's a second question to that is when do you share that with your pupils how, how do your pupils know what you're trying to achieve 
And is that something you do specifically or do your pupils share that? Do they know what you're trying to achieve in each subject? Why you're teaching it? Why it gets that amount of curriculum time? Is it just to pass exams? Is it just to get a good job? Or is there something more that people are trying to do with their subject? Very sage advice. Um, and I'd love to be part of those conversations, actually. So, yeah, great. Re- loads to think about, loads to dig into and a lot of hard done research actually underpinning all of this so thank you yeah. dr mary Woolley. the whole team that i have worked with on this you know it's definitely not a a single job so um you can you can see the names on the papers or everything but it's um i'm just the ones talking about it today and we should probably mention that you've got um a beer a blog that's coming out today is it Yes, I, I believe it is on the purposes paper that was published in the curriculum journal at the end of last year. So um, and that will go up on our, our website, the link to that. Lovely. All the goodies. Thank you very much, <laughs> Dr. Mary Woolley. It's been our pleasure. Um, good luck with future research. I'm sure you'll be back at some point to tell us yeah. more. Yes. Um, and yeah, we wish you we wish you well. Hopefully you'll be here in person, maybe maybe with Bob to uh, to talk to us again <laughs> on the podcast. We do, do, do a nice outdoor podcast session, couldn't we, Tom? That would be very nice. <laughs> Wonderful. And that uh, brings us to the end of another episode. Huge thanks to Dr. Mary Woolley. Um, do check out the NICER website and all its goodies. And we'll be back with you in two weeks' time. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was Dr Mary Woolley from Canterbury Christchurch University. Thanks to Mary for taking part. You can find all the goodies at the NICER website, nicer.org.uk. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blanford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. You can find us on Twitter at TalkTeachingPod if you want to come and say hello. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching.